Well, good morning. As we continue to behold our God, if you would turn in your Bible to John 3. Thank you, Adam, orchestra choir, for so faithfully and skillfully leading us in worship through song. And as we continue in our time of worship, we'll be in John 3, 17 to 21 this morning. Again, let me emphasize the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. As the church goes, so goes the culture. We all believe that. When the church is not light, darkness fills the culture. But the church has to be resourced. That means God's people have to give sacrificially so that the mission can be resourced. What a strategic way to steward your giving. So please be praying about your responsibility in this Easter offering. 100% of the money goes on the ground. No administrative, none of that. All of it goes to the missionaries on the ground. Well, for context, we're just going to look at verse 16, and then we're going to expound on verses 17 to 21 this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, coming to us in your son Jesus. And by the Spirit of Christ, we may behold the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we behold you this morning through the preaching of John three seventeen to 21. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. And so here in John three sixteen, we see the promise that those who believe in the Son of God would not perish. And we saw last week that perishing is an eternal reality because we have souls that can never die. It's the way God has made us. James Joyce, in his book, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, depicts, in my estimation, the most vivid picture of this eternal perishing that I have ever read in print. And here's what he says about the notion of eternal perishing, uh, eternal judgment. He says, to bear even the sting of an insect for all eternity would be a dreadful torment. What must it be then to bear the manifold tortures of hell? For all eternity, not for a year or for an age, but forever. Try to imagine the awful meaning of this. You have often seen the sand on the seashore. Now imagine a mountain of that sand, a million miles high, reaching from the earth to the farthest heavens, and a million miles broad, extending to the remotest space, and a million miles in thickness. And imagine such an enormous mass of countless particles of sand multiplied as often as there are leaves in the forest, drops of water in the mighty ocean, feathers on birds, scales on fish, hairs on animals, and imagine that at the end of every million years, a little bird came to that mountain and carried away in its beak a tiny grain of that sand. How many millions upon millions of centuries 
would pass before that bird had carried away even a square foot of that mountain. And yet at the end of that immense stretch of time, not even one instant of eternity could be said to have ended. At the end of all those billions and trillions of years, eternity would have scarcely begun. And if that mountain rose again after it had been all carried away, and if the bird came again and carried it all away again, grain by grain, and if it so rose and sank as many times as there are stars in the sky, drops of water in the sea, leaves on the trees, feathers upon birds, scales upon fish, hairs upon animals, at the end of all of those innumerable risings and sinkings of that immeasurably vast mountain, not one single instant of eternity could be said to have ended. Such is the case of those who perish in their sins. And John tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whosoever believes in him would not perish. That is, would not spend eternity under condemnation, but have eternal life. In other words, it took an infinite gift by the Father in the Son to secure an eternal future for us. And yet, the appeal of our own self-righteous good works is very strong. It, it plays to our vanity, doesn't it? But three times in John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, a Pharisee, three times he tells him of the need to be made new. You must be born again. If we would be right with God, we do not need a better version of ourselves. We need a complete restart. We need, as Titus 3.5 tells us, to be regenerated. We need, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, to be recreated. And we need, as Colossians 3.10 tells us, to be renewed. Indeed, we need conversion. That's John 3, 7, uh, 3, 16. We must believe in the Son. And these words are spoken not to some vile pagan. These words are spoken to Nicodemus, one of the most religiously accomplished men in the history of the world. Of course, John's or Jesus' answer to Nicodemus, is, is part of uh, a question that Nicodemus had raised in chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, how can these things be that I must be born again? How can it be that I must be made new when you consider my works, when you consider my religious commitments? These commitments have clearly set me apart from most anyone else in the history of the world. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and he is saying to every single one of us here, God is answering the question, Nicodemus, about the sufficiency of your good works, 
about the sufficiency of human obedience by offering his only son to make you right with him. That is God's answer to the question, are human works and obedience sufficient? No, they're not. God must give a substitute. God must give his son. Indeed, that's what we see at the very first part of this passage. We need the Savior so that our works don't condemn us. Our good works aren't going to get us into heaven. In fact, they will condemn us in the end. We need the Savior so that our, our works don't condemn us before God. Look with me in verse 17. So coming off the heels of that very well-known verse, the most important or most famous verse in all the Bible, verse 17 tells us, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so in John 3.16, God gave. In John 3.17, he sins. In fact, John's favorite designation of Jesus in his gospel is that he was sent by the Father. 39 times, John tells us, Jesus was sent by the Father for the world. What is the world? The world is the rebellious world of God's broken image bearers. That's the world that Jesus was sent to. Yet God, Scripture says here, didn't send his son in the first advent, that is his first appearing, to condemn the world, but to save the world. To say it another way, God didn't send Jesus to cause sinners to perish. Sinners were already going to perish without Jesus being sent. But God so loved the world that he sent his son to fulfill all righteousness for those of us who are unrighteous and to pay our sin debt for those of us who would believe. It was the only way for God to maintain his righteousness while at the same time saving the unrighteous. As Steve Wellam says so well, whereas sin is an internal moral problem for humanity, do you see that? That is our biggest problem. My biggest problem is not outside of me. My biggest problem is inside of me. So whereas sin is an internal moral problem for humanity, forgiveness is an intrinsic moral problem for God. I mean, there's a real dilemma here. And, and that's what he's establishing here in the sense that it arises due to tensions in God's own moral nature. As holy, righteous, and just, God, get this, in order to forgive us, he cannot deny himself. He has to remain true to himself. He can't arbitrarily forgive without full satisfaction of his own moral character and nature. For he himself is the moral standard of the universe. So in order for God to be just and a justifier, 
He has to send his son. He has to send the substitute. But those who refuse God's provision for sin are tragically and unnecessarily condemned. This week is the 110th anniversary of the completion of the Titanic. And on April the 10th, just a few weeks after it was completed, 110 years ago, the Titanic made its maiden voyage, its only voyage. Because on April the 14th, four days later, it hit an iceberg, and you know the rest of the story. But one of the real travesties of that terrible tragedy that took 1,500 of 2,200 passengers' lives that was on the ship is the number of empty seats that were on the lifeboats. So many empty seats on these lifeboats that were taking people to safety. It makes you cringe when you think about it. But that pales in comparison to the unclaimed offer of God to save sinners from eternal death in Jesus Christ. Now that is not to deny sovereign grace and salvation. If you are saved, it's by the grace of God. It's not to deny human depravity. But so great is our enslavement to sin. So great is our enslavement to unbelief. Untold numbers perish rather than believe. And yet, notice in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Given the reality of eternity, we just read about eternity from James Joyce, right? Given the reality of eternity, can there be better news and assurance than the first part of verse 18? Again, let me read that. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That is a universal truth, and it's true for every person here. If you're not a Christian yet, no matter whatever your sins are, whoever believes in him, that you are united to Christ by faith, by belief, you will not be condemned. That is the promise of John 5.24. Later, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me will not come into judgment, will not be condemned, but have, he will have eternal life. He has crossed over from death to life. That is a promise, no matter what your past or present is. That's good news. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and it's hard to paraphrase Spurgeon. He says it so well, you just have to quote him. And Spurgeon says, if an angel could say to me, Charles Spurgeon, I have come from heaven to tell you that you are pardoned, I would reply, I know that without your telling me anything of the kind. And I know it on a greater authority than yours. If he asked me how I knew it, I would answer, the word of God is better to me than the word of an angel. And he has said, whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
Go to bed tonight saying, if I die in my sleep, I cannot be condemned. If you wake up tomorrow morning, go into the world saying, I cannot be condemned. When the devil howls at you, tell him, you may accuse me, but I cannot be condemned for I believe in Christ. Amen. But here in verse 18, we have justification by faith, but also condemnation by unbelief. Look at the second part of verse 18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There are not three groups. This is binary truth. Jesus is telling us here there are only two groups of people who have ever existed. There are those who believe and are saved. There are others who do not believe and are condemned. You say, well, how about those who've never heard the gospel? Well, the reality is Paul tells us in Romans 1 that they have God revealing themselves to them through general revelation. And what they do with general revelation is exactly what they would do with the gospel apart from God's saving grace. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Now, certainly greater accountability comes to those who hear the gospel. We'll speak to that in a moment. But no one has a neutral standing before God. We're not in a state of probation with God. That probation passed away in the days of Adam. Our trial is over. Our sentence has already been rendered. And we are, Scripture says, condemned already. Psalm 90 Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. Why? Well, Jesus tells us right here in verse 18 that unbelief is the root problem. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. If we had no other son, or sin rather, if we had no other sin... Of course, that's so hypothetical. But if we had no other sin, unbelief is enough to sink us to the lowest hell. Why? Because unbelief is the height of idolatry. Because you're going to believe in something. And if you're not believing in God himself through his son, you have a God replacement. It's the height of idolatry and it makes God to be a liar. Unbelief says you cannot be trusted. I do not believe you when you promise me forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Spurgeon. Oh, believe me. If you could roll all sins into one mass, if you could take murder, blasphemy, lust, adultery, fornication, and everything that is vile, and unite them all into one vast globe of, of vile corruption, they would not equal even then the sin of unbelief. That is the monarch sin, the quintessence of guilt, the mixture of the venom of all crimes, 
the dregs of the wine of Gomorrah. It's the A1 sin, the masterpiece of Satan, the chief work of the devil. But for the believer, Jesus is saying here in verse 18, our trial is over. Our trial has passed. God, through the life, the death, the resurrection of his son, has moved our judgment day from the future to the past. That's the gospel. He has moved our judgment day from the future to the past. Jesus is saying, for those who believe in him and his work and have stopped relying on their own merit, their own good works, they've stopped relying on a perverted understanding of forgiveness, a perverted understanding of, of, of love, whatever it may be. At that moment, that very moment, we are saved, you are saved from condemnation, wrath. But until then, we are condemned. Indeed, we are born condemned. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, that we are by nature, get this, objects of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3, by nature, objects of wrath. And verse 19 tells us why. Notice in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. I want you to notice the juxtaposition here. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. And here... What does verse 19 tells us? People love the darkness. God so loved the world, people loved the darkness. The, the accrued evidence that can convict us all of naturally hating the light is unlimited for every single one of us. It, it's been accrued and the evidence is foolproof. It would condemn us all of hating the light. But John says, and more particular, Jesus says in John, that the one offense for which the world will be held for the highest accountability with the highest condemnation is its response to the coming of the Son of God. So for instance, consider the prophecies of Jesus. There were so many prophecies in the, of the, in the Old Testament that, that spoke about the one who would come and who would be born. Herod knew that. And it's interesting that Herod actually believed those prophecies, it appears, in some way, in some kind of perverted way, because his response was to slaughter all the baby boys born in Bethlehem because he loved the darkness rather than the light. Or how about the miracles? In John chapter 6, Jesus, with just a few loaves and fish, he fed 5,000 people. He multiplied, and there were 12 baskets left over, one for every disciple. And how did they respond? Well, as long as they were having their bellies filled, it appeared they were loving Jesus. But then he began to preach the gospel, and they all disappeared. John chapter 6. Or how about 
in John 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. A man was raised from the grave. How did the Sanhedrin respond? That's when they determined to have Jesus put to death. And all of these are representative test cases. All of these represent how we in our natural state would respond to Jesus. Think about this. It's the same way when the gospel is preached and the unbeliever hears the gospel and refuses to believe. It's no different than how these people responded to Jesus in the first century. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you want to know what this world is like, look at what it did to him. He was the Son of God. He, he had left the throne of heaven. He had come and humbled himself, and he gave himself to healing people and to instructing them. He never did anyone any harm. He, he went about doing good. What was the response of the world? It hated him. It persecuted him. It rejected him. It chose a murderer before him. It crucified him. It killed him. And there on the cross, he exposed the world for what it is. And if Jesus came today... He would be treated in the same way. It would be that treatment 2.0. Why? Why do I say that? Well, verse 20. Notice in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things, and the most wicked of all is unbelief, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. John is saying that those who do evil are not indifferent to the light. They hate the light out of self-protection. The light would expose their darkness. That's why they hate the light. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do when God came to them in the garden, as was his custom? They fled because they did not want his light to expose their darkness. And, and by the way, that is why sin is so terribly dangerous to our faith the reason most believers who do shipwreck their faith shipwreck it is not because they've come into new evidence that exposes the faith it's because the sin that they've entered into now causes them to do a reevaluation of the light the gospel uh, donald gray barnhouse he once spoke to a group of college freshman girls on the gospel. And after his message, this freshman girl came up to him and she was livid. She was screaming in anger. And she, and she renounced everything he said. And she said, I no longer believe that. She said, when I got to college, I became enlightened. And Barnhouse, recognizing she must have had some kind of Christian gospel past, she said, he said, were you raised in a Christian home? She said, yes. But in November, I renounced that hogwash. And he said... Young lady, could I ask you a question? You renounced the faith in November. What happened in October? And she teared up. And she confessed that she had fallen into sexual immorality. 
And the combination of, of that sinful desire and the shame that came along with that desire had caused her to turn. Sin is a dangerous thing for Christians to play with. And that brings us to the last part of this passage. That's why we need the Savior so that our works will not be condemned and we need the Savior so that our works can commend us before God. Look with me in verse 21, final verse. But whoever does what is right comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What does doing what is right mean? Well, if you took it out of context, it might appear that if you'll just clean up your act, uh, turn over a new leaf, make some resolutions, uh, and just get with the program, just obey. That's not the context. The context is those who believe. Jesus has already condemned good works. He's speaking to the most religious man who ever walked the planet, Nicodemus. Doing what is right and doing what is true here refers to responding to the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. Doing what is true means rightly responding to the truth that has been revealed. Rightly responding to the gospel. Stop relying on your good works, which are filthy rags before a holy God, and do what is true by responding to the truth. Jesus Christ responding to the light. Jesus Christ, John 8, 12, the light of the world. Come to him in repentance and faith. That's what it means. And, and what we see here, there are two truths about saving faith in this final verse. It always results in a changed life. Not a perfect life. Even after you're saved, you will need the gospel to cover you every moment of your life. You will need the blood of Christ to cleanse you. You will need the righteousness of Christ to cover you, even after you are saved. But faith always results in a changed life. Someone asked me this week, what is the difference between someone who believes in Jesus and someone who follows Jesus? And I said, there is no difference. To believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. Faith always results in a changed life. The second thing we see here is saving faith, true faith, doing what is true, it brings glory to God. Notice in the last part of that verse, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These are a new kind of works. These are works that have been cleansed and covered by the righteousness of Christ and now are being empowered by the Spirit of Christ. That's what Jesus meant in Matthew 5, 16. He says, um, when he talks about our good works which glorify our God in heaven. And so our works are like the fruit of what God has done for us in the Son. Our works are God's crowning His grace. 
It, it's kind of like when I was a, 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 when my children were children, and, and they would take money from my pocket and then go buy me a Christmas gift. All right? And I thought, that's a great illustration of good works. Our good works are just God's resources entrusted to us so that we may give them back to glorify and crown him as our heavenly father, as God, and as Savior. And the only explanation for these good works is the gospel. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. In other words, he, he redeems us from the penalty of sin by the cross. He redeems us from the power of sin by the cross. He gives us the spirit to carry out these good works. Leon Morris says that during the darkest days of World War I, when so many English sons had, had, had died for the cause, uh, one Englishman took his young son for a walk on an evening and and the son kept noticing there were pictures and uh, stars in the windows of all the homes. And he asked his father, he said, Father, what, what are those stars in the windows? And the father said, that comes from this terrible war. It shows that these people have given a son. And they walked a bit further. And the son looked up and noticed the bright evening star in the, the sky. And he said, Daddy, God must have given a son too. And Morris added, that is it. In the terrible war against evil, and the greatest evil is not outside of us, it's inside of us, right? In the terrible war against evil, God gave his son. That's a promise for everyone here who would believe. That is the way evil was defeated. God Paid the price. That is a gospel word for every person sitting here today. And that's also what we celebrate at the table. And today we are going to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, the third Sunday of every month. On Sunday evenings and the fifth Sunday of every month, we're going to devote the entire service to this. Spend more time. But the Lord's Supper is a gift to the church. And, and for those of you that are visiting, uh, you, you are invited to this table upon a couple of conditions. You are a baptized, repentant believer in the all-sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a member in good standing of a like-minded church that believes that gospel. If that is your testimony, we invite you to partake with us here this morning. Uh, the, the Lord's Supper is a church's act. It's not something we do in our living room. It's a church's act of communing with Christ and with each other and commemorating Jesus' death by partaking of the bread and the cup. But it's also the individual's act. I mean, you're going to stand before God, not as a community. You're going to stand before him individually as well, right? So it's the believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing our commitment to Christ, and get this, and to his people. We renew our commitments to Christ and to his people, thereby making the church one body and marking us off from the world. With that- Thanks for worshiping with us today. 
If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.